Please take your copy of God's Word. Go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're picking up where we left off last week. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18, and we will go through verse uh, 11, 6 today. We're almost done with this book. We've got three weeks left. It's hard to believe that we're finally here. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you somewhere. I'd encourage you to grab that Bible. Uh, Turn to page 382. I'd like to ask you to follow along so that you can see what God has said to us, to His church, and to the world. These timeless, incredible truths. If you don't know how to find Ecclesiastes in your own Bible, just go to the middle. You'll be there in the book of Psalms, and then you can turn to the right just a few pages, and you'll find this amazing book. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, if you found your way there, please stand as I begin reading at verse 18. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's uh, play pretend for a moment. Let's use our imaginations, all right? Let's use our imaginations. This can be helpful to do these little thought experiments. So let's put our imagination caps on. Imagine that the, uh, all the political movements of the world escalate into the worst case scenario. So the war in Russia continues and starts to suck in NATO. China invades Taiwan and World War III breaks out. In World War III, against all odds, we lose. China becomes a superpower of the world. In fact, the entire world consolidates power behind China in a one-world government. Xi Jinping is now the king of the entire earth as the head of the world. The dollar disappears overnight and is replaced with an official currency of the world government. Of course, there's black market currency, so you may still use your dollars on the black market, but any official currency will be done with the official currency that is now the currency of the, of the global superpower. Every transaction now will be on your phone, and every transaction that takes place that you do with the official money, if you want to live in the real world, there are two images on this, on this, on this digital money. The first image is that of Xi Jinping. And that inscription under his head reads, The Deified One. 
Next to that, there is an image of a goddess, a woman who is a goddess, and under that, it says the words peace. So peace is deified. And the imagery and what is communicated is clear every time you have any transaction is that Xi Jinping is a god and his power and his government provides world peace. To make matters even worse, um, you will pay a tax, a tributary tax. You will pay tribute to Xi Jinping based on every member of your household. And to make matters even worse, a portion of that tax will go to maintaining a cult of worship to the emperor, Xi Jinping. Now, I want you to think about this in that nightmare scenario. Can you use that money and still be a Christian? Can you pay tax and still be a faithful Christian? Or is it a sin? Is it idolatry? Here's the tension some of you might have. You might say, I'm not going to use that money for nationalistic reasons because you're an American and we're all rebels at heart. It hurts you to think about paying tribute to a foreign government, but yet you're a conquered people. But there are others, the majority probably, who will object on religious grounds. And you say that this is idolatry and this is a sin. It makes us unfaithful to God. Some of you might would say this is the mark of the beast, right? Um, that would probably be closer than a lot of the things that people have said that it is lately. Now, what would it take to navigate the situation? It takes wisdom. Wisdom and shrewdness. Wisdom of the Word of, the word of God. Wisdom to be able to apply the Word of God in real-life scenarios. And this is what we've been talking about over the past several weeks, is in this section, as we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, we come to these proverbial sayings, and it's wisdom that he's imparting. God is imparting wisdom to us through Solomon. And wisdom applied, we define that as shrewdness, that you're able to understand the world you live in, understand God's word, and then apply that, and so that you're not gullible. Jesus is the wisest man that ever lived. He's the shrewdest man that ever lived. He wants us to be shrewd. And this very scenario played out in Jesus' life, the one I just proposed to you. In the time of Jesus, Rome had all power of the world that mattered. They were the superpower of the world. And some Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus to entrap him. They laid a trap for him, and Jesus, because he's shrewd, could discern what was happening. But in Jesus' time, the coin had the uh, image of Tiberius Caesar on it, and it said the deified one on it, and on the back was an image of a Roman goddess, peace, and the imagery was clear that by the power of this god incarnate, Caesar, we have the Roman peace. So you live in the peaceful world because of this deified man. A portion of that tax would go to maintain his cult emperor worship. And you couldn't live without using that money. Now, there are people in the Jewish empire that oppose for nationalistic reasons and other for religious reasons. But the trap is laid for Jesus in this scenario. Okay, so they come to him publicly and ask him, is it lawful, meaning is it moral to use this money or is it a sin against God? Now, the trap is this. If he says, no, don't use that money, they'll turn him over to Rome as an insur insurrectionist and he'll be crucified before his appointed time. 
which we know is an impossibility, right? But Jesus is shrewd, so he's able to navigate this. But the other trap is that if he says yes, then they can, they can, they can squelch his following. As he's developing a following among the regular ordinary people, they can say Jesus is an idolater. He's unfaithful to Moses, and now they can begin to come after him on these religious grounds. Jesus is an unfaithful Jew. So there were people there, there were Herodians, they, they were like secularized Jews, they loved the Romans, they're like our liberal Christians today, they were completely secular. But then there were the zealots, those who were really faithful to the law, and they saw this as idolatry. And I have the suspicion today that in America, most Americans fall into one of those two camps. They're either completely secularized Herodians, uh, they don't resemble Christianity at all, only in name, Christians in name only. Or they're very zealous. Very zealous. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So you might, want to, you might have wanted to say, no, could never pay that, could never use that currency to your family's own detriment. And yet Jesus navigates this perfectly in Matthew 22, 17. This is what shrewdness looks like. Tell us then, they say to Jesus, what, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. It's interesting, right? The ones who don't think you should have it, they've got the coin on them because they're hypocrites. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, It's Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And, and when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. His answer, of course, is the correct one. It's the shrewd one. All secular governments are appointed by God. This is the truth that Paul will elaborate on in Romans 13. Even the governments we don't like, the ones that are in power, are appointed by God. And they own everything in their realm, even the money that you use. It's theirs. And if you're in a dictatorship, it's the king's. It's his inscription. But whose inscription are you? Whose image do you bear? You're made in the image of God. Now you render proper worship and everything in your life to God. And they marveled. He, 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 was, he just navigated their trap perfectly. And they couldn't say anything. The emperor gets his money, but he doesn't get your worship. And there was a way to live in the Roman Empire as a faithful Christian. Many did it. Now we don't believe in luck as Christians, but as Providence would have it. Sometimes, you know, the Roman soldiers would come by with the little bust of Caesar, the Christians that could use that money and navigate that. They came to a point where they had to make a stand because they'd bring the, the little bust by and they would say, worship Caesar or you're going to die. And the Christians said no. And many of them died, right? But see, the shrewdness involved is that you live in that world, you're able to use that currency. And I don't think we're very shrewd today. I think Christians are not known as shrewd people. Not able to apply biblical wisdom to the, to the real world in a way that will take care of their family and lead to a, a relatively peaceful life. But Jesus wants us to be shrewd. He tells us to be shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. We like the innocent as doves part. But we don't have the shrewdness part down. So we've been looking at 12 lessons about shrewdness or how do we apply wisdom to the world. And that's the section that we've been on. And we've already knocked out 
two sermons in this regard. And here's what we saw. We saw that shrewdness is real power. Shrewdness understands the danger of folly, that just a little bit of folly, if you turn wisdom off, can ruin your life. We saw shrewdness walks the narrow road. There are two ways to live in this world, the way of the wise and the ways of the fools. And we saw shrewdness should be, we should be restrained in the face of anger. Then last week we saw how to be shrewd in the sphere of politics. The, this whole world is political, right? Everybody's playing political games in this world. Doesn't matter if you're in actual politics or if you're working, you know, over at the coffee shop. Then there's shrewdness in the sphere of work. How should we go about our work? A little different than what we'll see today, which is work ethic. And we saw shrewdness in the way that we speak and our speech and shrewdness toward governments. And now today we have four final lessons on shrewdness. Four final lessons. And so my purpose is simple, as it has been the past several weeks, is to help you to be a shrewd Christian, to be wise, right? So that you would not be known as a gullible person, that you would be a wise person, and the reason we want to do that is because Jesus was wise and he was shrewd and we want to be like him. If we are his followers, we want to be like him in all ways. So let's look at these final four lessons. Number one, shrewdness in the sphere of work ethic. A little different angle than what we saw last week. We're talking about work ethic now. So look back at your text in 18 through 19. You'll see this. Through sloth, the, root, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. This is all about work ethic. Now pictured here is a house whose roof is sinking in and is now leaking because there's a lazy man who won't take care of what needs to be taken care of. And so as he's put off doing what he knows needs to be done for so long, now his house is caving in. His house is ruining. And the, the lesson is very simple, right? It's straightforward. Laziness will ruin your life. Laziness will ruin your house. And because of indolence, indolence, indolence is idleness. It means, uh, I, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. You've heard that. It means inactivity. So for failure to act, your house is destroyed. Let me give you a real life scenario from my own life. Okay? I'm not a lazy person. I don't think anybody ever accused me of that. In fact, before I was ever in the army, when I was a plumber, I was known for my good work ethic. Used to be a plumber. And... That's not an advertisement to you, all right? So when you have plumbing problems, you can call the plumber because the emphasis is on I used to do that. I'm not a plumber anymore. And I'm not lazy. Um, like to work, like to work with my hands, like to work, like to study. But here's the deal. I'm a sinner just like you. And given the right circumstances, I can be really lazy, especially when it comes to working on your own plumbing. I don't know what it is about this type of thing, right? Mechanics, their cars don't run well sometimes. Sometimes plumbers, they don't have good plumbing. And so I have a, a, lot, a lot of hard water where we live. There's, the water's really hard. And so I know, okay, there's hard water means it's really hard on water heaters. But I was kind of lazy, and I didn't drain my water, my water tank. You should drain your water tank every, every year. There's, there's some free, uh, free wisdom for you, right? Drain your water tank every year, especially if you have hard, hot water. So I knew that. And then the signs were all there. My water heater is going to fail. Like it's, oh, the hot water runs out quickly. Uh, the element is like not lit anymore. It won't stay lit. So I put it off. And because of my idleness, what do you, what do you think happened? 
You know what happened. The water heater failed, so I got to come home one day to a flooded house. Burst out, all came out of the bottom, out the, the emergency valve. Now we get to pull up the carpet. Now we get to take you know, the carpet padding out and all the fans, and we get to do all the repairs, right? Because I was lazy. I was lazy. I wasn't, I'm not a procrastinator. I told you that. I'm not a procrastinator. But given the right set of circumstances, I can be lazy, and so can you. I played water heater Russian roulette, and you never want to play that game. Tanks will fail every time. So hear this warning. Hear this warning from God. Be wise in your own life. Laziness will destroy your home. And the home here doesn't just mean home things and home appliances. It stands really for everything in your life. Laziness will destroy your life. Laziness in your marriage will destroy your marriage. If you, if, you, if you are not intentional about your relationship with your spouse and you're lazy, you will have a bad marriage. Eventually, it will destroy your marriage. The same thing goes with your relationship with your children. We have so many children here. And if you are lazy with your relationship with your children, then your, your relationship with your children is going to fail. And they will not grow up to be the man or woman that God wants them to be. Even if, yes, even if you homeschool your children. And I put the, the more emphasis on the fathers in, the, in this regard. Fathers need to be intentional with each and every child that God has given them. Okay? You need to be spending time with each of your children. And you need to be intentional about the conversations you have with your children, intentional about what you teach them, intentional about what you let slide. You need to be intentional about how you show them grace. Kids need to be shown grace as much as they need to be disciplined. Show them mercy. Be intentional in understanding that the picture that your children form about who God is is going to come based off of you, the Father. You will form what your children think about God. And if you are lazy, your children will suffer because of your laziness. And laziness in your walk with the Lord, it will destroy your life. It will destroy your walk with the Lord. Reading your Bible requires discipline. Right? Discipline will ensure you do things when you don't want to do them. That's, that's what discipline does. It's like a life hack. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but you're not going to be motivated to do Christian things all the time. But if you are disciplined, then you'll do it. I learned this lesson early on after I had become a Christian. Because after you become a Christian, what? You've got all the motivation in the world, don't you? You're on cloud nine. And that might last years. It lasted several years for me, probably three years. Three years. I was just on cloud nine as a Christian. Eventually, it's, that's gonna, it's gonna, you're going to come back down to reality. And there was a time where I just did not want to read my Bible anymore. I had zero motivation to read my Bible. I talked to this guy. He'd been a pastor for a long time, and I just told him the truth. I said, I don't even want to read my Bible anymore. just don't want to do it. Does that mean? Does it mean I'm not even a Christian? He said, well, do you know that Christians should read their Bible? I said, yeah. He said, well, then just read your Bible. It's like, what do you mean? Like, there's got to be something more to it. He's like, no, there's nothing more to it than that. You just get up and you read the Bible, whether you want to read it or not. And eventually, your feelings will catch up later. That's true. Can it be that easy? It really is that easy, right? 
Your feelings will catch up later. So we need to cultivate discipline. We can be lazy in a whole lot of spheres in our life, and no matter where you're lazy, it's going to catch up with you. And it'll destroy your, it'll destroy your life. It'll destroy your relationship with your kids, your marriage, and with God. Paul Washer, he's got all these famous, these famous clips, doesn't he? He's got one of the most famous ones uh, lately that's been going around. It's kind of viral. Is um, him talking about people, they say they don't have time to pray. So I don't have time to pray. And of course he does, you know, only, only Paul Washer can do. He takes out the big hammer of the law. And uh, he says, so I'll tell you what you do. You just go home at night and you just look at your phone and it'll tell you how much time you've spent on each app on your phone. And then you just compare that to how much time you prayed. You've got all the time in the world. And that's good. I mean, it hits hard. But I think there's a bigger truth behind it than that. I think the reality is, is why people don't read the Bible, the reason people don't pray, the reason people don't disciple their children, they don't spend time with them or with their spouse. But let's go back to just praying and reading the Bible because it's easier to scroll through Instagram than it is to turn the pages of your Bible. And maybe you're a little bit lazy, right? It's easier to just zone out and scroll mindlessly Twitch, change over to Twitter, read Twitter, go over and look at YouTube. Next thing you know, you've wasted two hours of your life. And it's not because of anything else than this. You're lazy. You do have time, but it takes a little work to spend time with the Lord. It takes a little bit of work to read the Bible. The hard issue is that of laziness. Now, why are you lazy? Because you're a sinner. You're a sinner just like me. God created you not to be lazy. He created you to work. Work is a pre-fall phenomenon. It's a good thing. And after the fall, we don't want to do it. We become lazy. Laziness is a form of rebellion. We don't, we don't want to sugarcoat this. Laziness in any sphere is rebellion against God. I want you to think about something as simple as people stopping coming to church. Think about something this simple. And the downward spiral that I know you've seen in most people's lives that just stop coming to church. How, how does this happen? How do we end up in apostasy? Well, it started with laziness. A lot of times it starts with laziness. It's easier, it's easier to sleep in. I'm just going to sleep in. You don't know how tired I am, how long I've worked. And, you know, Saturday we played all day and now I'm tired. It's easier just to sleep in. And especially easy now because... You can just turn on the internet and watch church on, you can, you can cast it from your phone to your TV and sit there and you're right there, you're in church. Well, next thing you know, you've not only skipped one or two Sundays, you've created a pattern of not going to church anymore at all. That's always how it starts, only with one time. And the next thing you know, you're starting to blame the church for the problems in your life. Even though you're the one that left the church, they didn't leave you, you left them. Next thing you know, after being gone for a pretty good while, maybe you're engaged in sexual immorality and you're still blaming the church. And then after a while, you start to deny inerrancy, that the Bible is inspired by God, that it is God's word. And then after a while, you become fully LGBT affirming. And then after a while, you apostatize. But what started it? Laziness. Laziness started it because it was easier, it's more comfortable just to stop going to church. 
Your spiritual roof will collapse on your head if you're lazy. It takes work ethic and discipline. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. How do we cultivate the opposite? Well, one way you could do is just go out in your front yard and watch the ants. If you're like me, you've got, you've got ants in your, in your yard. Just go out and watch them. This is what God tells us. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Verse 19 then kind of teaches the opposite, the positive version of this. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. A little bit of a wooden translation kind of misses the nuance that's in the Hebrew. So one commentator translates this verse like this, Dwayne Garrett. He smooths it out and it's really going to make sense to you. People prepare food for pleasure and wine makes life joyful, but money pays for both. Yes, to live in this world and to have these things, to have food and to have drink and many times to have entertainment and joy, you got to have money. This is the most real, realistic, down-to-earth book I'm telling you in the Bible. Like we want to like become really pietistic and say, oh, you know, because we want to avoid greed altogether, that we forget that you can enjoy life. That life, God created a good world. There are many things that are great in this world. And he's told us several times over and over and over, here's what I recommend. I recommend that you eat and drink and enjoy your wife, enjoy your work, because you don't know what's happening tomorrow. There are a lot of great things in this world, and you can't get a lot of them if you don't have money because you're lazy. Now, of course, we want to avoid greed, and he's done that so many times. He's told us to avoid greed over and over and over. So this isn't like telling us money is the answer to all life's problems. Far from it. He's just pitting an opposite to what was said before. Your house will be destroyed by laziness, but if you are a hard worker, generally speaking, generally, you're going to have enough money to have food, to have a little wine, and to enjoy life. This is just how God has, has, has made this world. A hard worker is going to have those things, usually. So cultivate a work ethic. Work as a Christian heartily to the Lord. Work in every sphere of your life as if it is to God's glory. Have you guys heard the term Protestant work ethic? I couldn't help but think of that when I heard this. Protestant work ethic, that's kind of gone away. Um, there's a reason there's a term called Protestant work ethic. It's because it emerged uh, out of the Protestant Reformation. The theology of Martin Luther, the theology of Calvin, and many of the other reformers transformed all of society as we know it. See, prior to those guys, the only people that could work for the Lord were priests. Everybody else's work was just menial, meaningless work. But their theology, the theology of the Bible, transformed everyone's theology of work. Where... Now it didn't matter if you were a farmer and you worked for the Lord, that work was for his glory and it was just as good as the priest. If you were a person that shooed horses or you were a blacksmith, it didn't matter because you're working for the Lord. So what do you think that did to industry in the world? 
capitalism was born. Our country would not exist without the Reformation taking place. Protestant Reformation gave birth to an entire way of viewing work and everything else in life. And there's a reason the best watches in the world are made in Geneva, right? That's because coming right, right from that area of the world was Calvin's theology of work. So these watchmakers who just did menial, these menial tasks of making these small gears and doing this stuff, whatever, so people could have watches, they said, we're going to make the best watches the world has ever seen. And now none of us in here probably can ever buy one of those watches, right? But there's a reason that the, even those watches are so great. It's because of Protestant work ethic. It's not that people, people become lazy and it's not because they don't have anything to work for. They have families and kids. It's because they don't have anyone in particular to work for. Work for the Lord. Work for the Lord. Whatever you do, this is Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Doesn't matter what you're doing. A Christian should not be lazy in any sphere of their life. Right? Work for the Lord. There's no compartmentalizing this in your life where you can be known as a really hard worker, but then you go home and you let your water heater burst and flood your house. You need to do two things to cultivate not being lazy. You need to be disciplined. You need to, you need to have that discipline because you're not always going to be motivated. But you also need to have the motivation. You need, if you're not motivated, how do you get motivated? Well, you stop looking at yourself and looking at the circumstances of your life, and you start to look at Christ. Christ is our motivation. You and I, we fail all the time. We are prone to laziness. He never was. Jesus was never lazy. Not in any aspect of his life was he lazy. And so he's our perfect representative before God. Would you be in relationship with God? Well, then you need to have never been lazy. Not a day in your life. And all of us have. Because all of us are sinners. So we need a representative for us. Someone who lived as a perfect man. Who was diligent in every sphere of his life always worked for his Father. And that's what we find in Jesus Christ. Working heartily for the Father, doing everything that he was sent here to do, and then after living a perfectly obedient life, he could die for lazy people like me and you. The sin of laziness. Christ died for it. He was buried. He raised three days later. And that's great news for us. But that doesn't mean we just get to get off the hook and take it for granted and be lazy. We want to be like Christ, therefore let us flee laziness. Shrewdness regarding work ethic. Let's recapture that Protestant work ethic. Shrewdness in the sphere of powerful people. That's next. Look back at your text. Shrewdness regarding work ethic. Shrewdness regarding the sphere of powerful people. Look back at your text. You'll see this phrase or this, this uh, deal about birds and kings. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, <clears throat> nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature carry the matter. Have you, have you ever heard this phrase, a little birdie told me? I'm just thinking of this. I told Philip, there's no way that in the world that that phrase did not emerge from this passage. It had to have. It had to have come here. A little birdie told me so. 
right? And so he knows, Solomon knows the truth of this. You've got some, you got a little birdie ran and told you this information. Look at verse 20. It's about exercising caution in your speech and in your thoughts. There are two forms of powerful people mentioned here. You need to be shrewd in regard. Those who can harm you economically and financially and those who have governmental power over you. They're both mentioned, the king and the rich. And you want to exercise caution in your speech because they can literally alter your life. People who have power can alter your life. That's reality. They can harm your life. They can harm you financially. They can punish you politically. So be shrewd in your speech. Look at verse 20. Even in your thoughts, don't curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. So why, why would you just in your thoughts not even curse the king? You'd say, that's the one safe place that I've got. I'm not going to betray myself after all, right? I can keep these cursings of the king to myself. And the reason you don't want to do that is because you'll betray yourself at your earliest convenience. Jesus says out of, listen to, I want to read it word for word in Luke 6, 45. The good person out of the good treasures of their heart produces good. The evil person out of evil treasures produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever thoughts you're cultivating, you're going to slip up and betray yourself. So don't even, don't even curse the king in your own thoughts because it's not going to stay private. You're going to tell somebody else. And the one time you do is the time a little birdie's going to carry it away and tell somebody else. So, of course, if you don't think it, don't even say it. Right? Don't say it. You might say, well, don't you believe in freedom of expression, that people should be able to complain and whatever? Of course I believe in freedom of expression and freedom of speech and all of that. I also believe in self-induced censorship, which is what Christians need to be more wise about doing. Self-induced censorship for your own sake. Proverbs 21, 23 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. James 3, 5 says that the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And sometimes you burn your whole house down just because you can't keep your mouth shut. Now here's what is amazing today. Okay, People will violate this, not just in their own home and in their own mind. They'll do it publicly <laughs> to their own detriment. It's, it's uh, I guess it's amusing. I, mean, I got a dark sense of humor, you know that, right? Because I was in the military. Sorry, you know, still being sanctified, I guess. Um, so I like to, I find these little stories maybe more amusing than I should. Um, in 2014, on an app called Twitter, is that a coincidence that it's a little bird? I don't think, I don't know. Is it? Is it? Maybe it's not. Maybe a little bird, it tells you everything that you put on Twitter. But in 2014, this employee on, of, of Yelp, of course, she's, you know, woke or whatever. She goes on there and blasts Yelp and blasts the CEO because, of course, um, grumming out of college, you should make probably like $100,000. Did you guys know that about these generations? Coming out of college, of course, you know, you're the greatest thing in the world ever, and you should make 
CEO salary, and it should be dispersed around everyone equally. So, of course, the backing of all of these Marxist sympathizers, that's what I call them, um, they, uh, they've got her. Yes, you go, girl. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? You'll never guess that she was fired, all right? <coughs> she was fired immediately from the CEO. She's given a permanent vacation. So learn this lesson. Be shrewd. <coughs> Be shrewd. Understand that people over you can alter your life. People have political power over you. People have economic power over you. So don't harm yourself. <laughs> how, how, how easy of a lesson is that? The Bible is so practical. Keep your mouth shut. It's, a, it's an easy lesson. A little birdie will fly away and tell on you. Be shrewd. Shrewdness in work ethic, shrewdness regarding those who have power over you. And these last two, these are the last two, 11 and 12, or 3 and 4 today, <clears throat> they're intertwined. So I'll present them to you kind of as intertwined. But there's shrewdness in the sphere of finances and shrewdness in the sphere of decision-making. You want to be shrewd with your finances, and you want to be shrewd in decision-making. These are verses uh, 11, 1 through 6. First, let's look at the text from this angle as far as being shrewd in your finances. Well, before we do, I want to draw your attention to verse 5, because verse 5 contains the truth that really undergird, undergirds both of these uh, lessons on being shrewd in finances and, and decision-making. So 11, in 11.5, we read this. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So first thing to remember, which he's already emphasized sev several times, is that God is sovereign over everything. Everything that happens in this world, there is a sovereign God behind it who has appointed it, determined it, controls it, supervises it, guides it, everything. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. If you look back there, you probably heard this at funerals, remember? For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up. He goes through all of these. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time for love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. That there's a sovereign God who has appointed all these times. You didn't appoint when you were born, and you didn't appoint when you die, and yet those days are appointed. And you're not the appointer. It's meant to humble you. There's literally an appointed time for everything that happens in your life. Verse 11 of chapter 3, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. What can be added to God's decre decreed plan? You can't add to God's plan. You can't take away from it. And yet, it is His plan. God has done it so that you would stand and you would fear Him. You would have a reverential awe and respect for God. So underlying these last two is this principle. God is sovereign over all that takes place, and you don't know what's going to take place. This idea of you not knowing is a huge part of interpreting these verses 11 through 6. Verse 2, you do not know. Verse 5, two times, you do not know. Verse 6, guess you can probably guess it, you do not know. 
So when we see that repetition, what is that telling us? Okay, God is sovereign over everything that takes place, and you don't know what that's going to be. So what do we need to live in this world like that? Well, we need to cultivate shrewdness in the, in the area of finances and in decision-making. So now we go back to verse 1. Let's read it. It's a strange verse, no doubt. Cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. <clears throat> Have you guys ever fed ducks? You know that that's not going to happen. You're going to throw your bread on the waters, it's going to get soggy, it's going to sink. So what's behind it? He's being, he's being Solomon. He's doing his thing. He's using these great visual pictures. Casting your bread upon the waters, most inter- interpreters believe he's referring to economics and finances. Right? In a seafaring trade and business, you invest or you throw your money out into the financial world and it'll come back to you, right? If you're shrewd, because you don't know what's gonna happen. So, because you don't know what will happen and there's these risks, you might invest in some deal and what, hap- might, what might happen? Your boat might sink. Well, what if you have put all of your life's money and invested it all in one boat and the boat sinks? Now what? Now you've lost everything, right? So, verse two. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. <clears throat> I wondered and wondered from the time I anal- started analyzing this, how in the world am I going to preach a sermon on this? Because this is about the diversification of income. And that's definitely not my wheelhouse as a preacher to preach on diversifying your income. Right? But nevertheless, it's true and it's wise. If you have money, don't put it all in one thing. Because a disaster might happen to you or to your business venture, and you might lose everything that you have. So if you have money, extra money, you want to divide it up so you can be safe. I mean, people know this. Even, even non-Christians follow this practice, right? So how much more shrewd should we be with our money if non-believers do this? We should be very shrewd, right? So how do we do this? Now, number one, if you have extra money, start diversifying where you put it. That's smart. But what if you don't and you just live paycheck to paycheck? What do you do then? Well, I think here's where you start. You just pay all your debts. Start pay, Just pay all your debts off until you don't have any debts and then save a little bit of money. Save money in case a disaster happens. You won't be caught off guard. And then if you save even more, then start to invest it in other things. But there's also a a bigger principle at work here, and I think it is this, that when you're blessed to live in the time that we are, you really should start developing more than one skill, right? So if you're, you know, if you're a father here, you ought to have more than one skill so that your family, so so your family is safe and protected. So if you lose your job, you can find a different job. You need to make yourself valuable as a man where you could work in a variety of dis- different sectors in the world. I saw, I saw this, uh, this lack of wisdom at seminary, believe it or not, because at seminary there are young men that what they do is right after they get out of high school, they go to Bible college, and they never get a real job. They just go to Bible school, and they just learn theology. Well, then right after Bible school, guess what they do? They go to seminary, and they never, have, they never get a real job. They borrow money, so they're professional students. And then when they graduate, what's the only thing they can do? 
they can only thing they can do in this world is be a preacher. And if they can't do that anymore, well then what? I mean, like, what are they going to do? I guess they can become a street performer, right? Instead of playing the violin, they can give speeches. But you know, I don't think that's very popular today. So you need to be learning a trade. You need to study other fields. You need to be a well-rounded person. So if something happens and you can't do that thing anymore, well, then you can shift. Did you guys know that George has a hidden talent? <clears throat> right? Um, you, guys, you, might, you guys need to forget about my hidden talents of plumbing, but remember George's. George's, you're never going to guess what it, was, what it is. You'll never guess it, not in a million years. If you guess it, I want you to guess it right now. If you guess it, I want you to come talk to me afterward, okay? Be honest, because God knows. George knows how to weld. Huh? I'm pretty sure he'll be all right. The economy collapses, they're always going to need some welders, right? Especially around here. So, the principle is very wise because it comes from God. Right? Diversify your income. Diversify your skill sets. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Disaster might happen on this earth. You don't want to be caught off guard. Incredibly practical stuff, I'm telling you. Be shrewd with your finances. Take calculated risks. The world, the world inherently has risk. Boats sink. So know the risk. Take steps to mitigate that risk. Verse 3 through 6, it kind of drives home this idea of decision-making. Now it kind of shifts gears, finances, but really they're intertwined. But decision-making, look back at your text. You'll see in, in three, 3 and 4 in particular, communicate this idea that though there is risk in the world, you don't know what's going to happen on the earth, there is still a measure of predictability here. Right? You can discern to a high degree of certainty a lot of times what's going to happen. There, are, there is predictability built into this world that God has made. So you'll see it. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in that place where the tree falls, there it will lie. You're able to see. Like we were at a ball game. Last night, and the sky changed into that weirdly, really, really weird color, right? And it's a color that you know if you live in Oklahoma or the Midwest. It's the color that this storm is going to produce hail. At, at a bare minimum, it's going to hail. We all know it. Everybody knows it. And so we just sit out there and just try to keep playing baseball, right? That's what we do in Oklahoma. Lightning in the background. Ah, we counted. You know, it's 20 miles away. It'll never strike here. Just keep on trucking. So you see that weird color and you know a tornado's coming, you know a storm's coming. People have known these things. You can see and discern that things are going to happen. Even bad things are going to happen. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, there it lies. It's kind of a, a way of just saying, whatever happens, happens. Whatever happens, happens. And you know this. You can look out into the world you can see things that can happen, bad things can happen. The world is full of risks, but whatever happens, it happens. But if you know that, and you come to verse 4, there are people who just can't navigate life like that. They want to mitigate all risks, and so they never act. They never do anything. They never make a decision. 
They never go to work in a business venture that has risks. They won't plant their crops on time because they're out here looking like, oh, the clouds. Look, look, the wind. The wind is not quite right, but if I wait one more week, the wind will be here. Oh, but the storm's back. I got to wait till the storm. And then next thing you know, because of indecision, they're so risk averse, they never act. And guess what happens? They don't have any food. They will not reap because they wouldn't take action. So how do you live in a fallen world? East of Eden, the world's fallen. The bad things happen in this world. It's full of risks. Well, you try to predict to a degree of predictability, and then you've got to act. You've got to make a decision. You've got to act. And if you don't, it could be to your own detriment. You've all know people like this. Maybe you're like this. You're so risk averse that you think something could happen. You never do anything. And that's not how we're to live. We know, yes, bad things happen. But we know even underneath all of that is God's sovereign plan, which we can't figure it out. We can't figure it out. It's meant that we would stand in awe of who God is. Incredibly practical stuff. Verse 4, look back at verse, or rather verse 5. Verse 5, as we come back to this, as it undergirds this, I just love the imagery that he presents here. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We don't know, right? We, we, we don't even know what human consciousness is. An adult human they don't even know what consciousness is. Do you know that? You, you can take my word for it, or you can go look it up for yourself. They don't know what it is. How much more do they not know about how the breath of life comes from God and a life comes into being inside a mother's womb? That's the picture. The picture here is not, oh, at some point along in the pregnancy, this will become an actual human. Right? Like That's what modern people say. This verse means you don't know how when two chromosomal pairs come together, the breath of life of God goes into that, and that, that becomes a person at conception. You don't know how that happens. Scientists don't know. They don't know how that happens. They know that it happens. They can describe it. They can watch it, but they don't know how. And just like that, right, there's inherent risk involved in having a child. Everyone who, who's ever had children knows this. Who everyone who's ever wanted to have a child knows this. You calculate the risk. Things go wrong in pregnancies. Many people miscarry. But God's plan is sovereign over it all. And that's what we see here in verse 5. You don't know the work of God who makes everything. And yet, we still try to have children. Even though there's great risk. It's the same thing in life. So we come to verse 6, which is the great application about acting. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You don't know. You don't know, but you live in a fallen world, and yet we still have to act. We still have to make decisions. And that's the lesson. That's the twelfth, right? And we want to be we want to be shrewd. As I said earlier, I think in the first, there's a reason in Hollywood Christians are portrayed the way they are. One is because the world hates us. No matter what we do, the world will hate us, and so we're always portrayed negatively. But you know what they never portray? A shrewd Christian. Ever. Even one that's like 
too shrewd. You'd think if Christians were known for being shrewd people, don't you think they would present us as like shrewd with a twist of being a little shady? But they don't even do that. They just present us as gullible. Let's be shrewd. Let's try to, in this generation and in our children coming up, let's try to change that. Because, not because we want the world to think fondly of us, because Jesus tells us to do it. We aren't going to now pursue this for God's blessings on us because we think, oh, if we become shrewd and I obey all 12 of these things, I can check all 12 of these off, God will be happy with me. No, because Christ has already died for us and he's been raised. And now because we are united with Christ by faith alone, we want to be like him. And he was shrewd. He was wise. He's able to navigate this world. And we want to be like him. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, this book is filled with all kinds of practical things like this. But the most important thing is that in this world that you would come to know Jesus Christ, the one who we are saying over and over that we want to be like. We want to be like him. Christ came into this world. He was truly God and he was truly man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life according to God's law, obeyed all of God's law perfectly. He was wise and he was good. And God was pleased with his life in every way. He was perfectly righteous and we aren't. We're lazy We're unwise, we're sinners, we're rebels at heart. But Christ calls to us for reconciliation because he died for sinners and you're a sinner. That means today he calls to you. That God, through me, calls to you today be reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ who covers all sin. If you turn from your sins today, right now, And I'm not asking you to do any work. I'm asking you to turn from your sin and by faith alone, believe that Christ died for you and call out to him for salvation. He will save you today. He will save you. He will give you a new life. He will take your old life, all of your sin. He'll cast it as far as the east is from the west and he'll give you a brand new life in Christ. And today we could call you a brother and sister and that's our hope. That's our hope today. But not only will you have life now, you'll have eternal life. That's our hope. So let's start with the wisest decision anyone could ever make today, and that's to follow Christ. If you're here today, the path of wisdom begins here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So I pray today that you would turn to Christ. If you do want to become a Christian today, and I hope you do, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the back. And if you do, I'll leave everyone else just for you. And we'll go back here to my office privately, and we'll talk about it. I pray that today you would do that as God calls to you. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would, through your spirit, God, that you would drive these truths home and help us to discipline ourselves, to cultivate shrewdness in our life, that we would have a good testimony in the world, that Christians would be known for people that, as people that are wise, And that in that seeing us as wise, they would see Christ. God, we pray that we would be salt, the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world. And God, to do this, we need to be shrewd. So I pray that you would send your spirit and transform our lives. To give us shrewdness, to give us wisdom. Help us to teach it to our children. And for those here who are not Christians, Lord, I ask as I do every Sunday. 
that you would grant them repentance leading to eternal life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.